All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This is that podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight is episode 182 of the show, and we're going to be talking about Apocalypse Now. This is a Memorial Day episode, and it's going to be uh, kind of a lengthy one, I think. Uh, But I am really looking forward to this conversation. And I just want to let you guys know that our uh, original guest... It didn't work out this time, so we have a very solid plan B. It's, in fact, it's someone who has studied this movie, seen it many, many times, and so we'll have a lot of insight uh, and really carry this episode, at least uh, in regards to uh, from my content. But uh, Robert also has tons of notes for this, and let's check in with him now. Down on the sideline, how are things going in uh, FEMA Region 6 or 10 or whichever one we're in? Uh, Inslee has come out with new guidelines and I think has backed off on a few things. Uh, such as the contact tracing and the um, Stasi level of keeping a log of all customers and, and all transactional history. Oh, good. Then we have nothing to fear and nothing to worry about. Excellent. All good news. Back to you, Daniel. All right. So back to us up in the studio. This is going to be a really exciting show for you guys. And uh, we only have our guest for a short period because he's already on the East Coast time and it's already late there. Uh, but uh, happy Memorial Day. Um, I guess if that's something we can say as anarchists, uh, and we'll dive into it uh, right after this on the Last Nighters portion of the show. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Paul Johnson, and we are the Last Nighters, and you can find us also on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your, in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is going to be episode 125 of the show. This is a Memorial Day episode, and we're going to be doing Apocalypse Now uh, with Extreme Prejudice. We're going to review this movie. And when this came up as an idea back in February, I didn't mean Apocalypse right now, as in literally due to the pandemic, uh, but as per usual, as some of the most uh, uh, best centrally laid out plans uh, almost always fall through. So do the occasional individual plans. But fear not, we have a solid plan B for a guest who's been with us multiple times talking about the Aviator Reds and there was something else and he'll need to remind me. But it is plan B, uh, Mr. John Reed, back at it again, being an awesome guest. Welcome back, John. The uh, other movie was And the Band Played On. Oh, that's right. That's our our recent one. Yes. How could you forget? That was such a that was the perfect episode. It was, and it 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 brought up the uh, we were talking trash about your boyfriend Matthew Modine, mm-hmm. and if you weren't on for Apocalypse Now, we were going to have you on for Full Metal Jacket, which I th- I still think is a good idea because that's a great movie. I love Kubrick, and I think that that would be a very interesting one to do. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, so I would definitely be down for that. All right, so Robert, you heard that he's DTF yeah, for he's DTF for uh, FM J. J. 
DTF and maybe maybe Matthew Modine's one good movie in his entire career. I like it. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to have a highlight. And I think that this episode might be one of our highlights. And I just want to throw this out there. Um, we, we teased you guys that Jeff Deist was going to be our guest. Uh, and I said we had a better than zero chance. Well, it still wasn't 100%. Uh, so we hope to have him on sometime in the future. Uh, and do check out the Mises Institute, of which he is the president of. It has a whole bunch of resources, a bunch of Murray Rothbard stuff, Ludwig von Mises, of course, their namesake. And they're always pumping out excellent content. Uh, so we really, really do support them and hope that you check it out uh, at Mises.org. So, uh, John, welcome back to the show. And we will get into this uh, 125 as the episode number and the show notes can be found on lastnighter.com slash 125. And we will start off with the El Google Descriptione. So Apocalypse Now came out in 1979. It's a war slash drama film, two hours and 33 minutes. And that's the theatrical cut uh, rated R. 8.4 on the IMDb, 98% Rotten Tomatoes, 94% Metacritic, and 87% of Google users liked it. The description reads as thus. In Vietnam in 1970, Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen, takes a perilous and increasingly hallucinatory journey upriver to find and terminate Colonel Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando, a once promising officer who has reportedly gone completely mad. In the company of a Navy patrol boat filled with street-smart kids, a surfing-obsessed air cavalry officer, Robert Duvall, and a crazed freelance photographer, Dennis Hopper, Willard travels further and further into the heart of darkness. Release date, August 15, 1979. The director, of course, is Francis Ford Coppola, uh, who rode the coattails of his success with Godfather and all that money uh, they earned from it to actually make this film, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that. The budget was $31.5 million. It features very prominently the song uh, Ride of the Valkyries, and it won a couple of awards. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards and has been recut and recut a couple of times. And there's also a, how you say, a making of documentary called Hearts of Darkness that uh, came out uh, a couple of years ago, and I watched that to prepare for this. And it is uh, also very interesting to see how much went into this and how much shooting they actually did and how it finally came together uh, into what some would consider a masterpiece. So I normally go to Robert initially, but John, I want to get your uh, your take on uh, just kind of the opening, set the scene. And why is this film uh, prominent? Why, why is it what makes it good? I guess we'll just make it a very basic question. Well, the um, and I should preface this by saying, like I was telling you before the show, that um, I was in film school at Temple University in Philadelphia, and this was one of the very first films that I analyzed in a film class. Um, the the one of the first clips I saw in this clip in this class was kind of a, a back and forth between Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, and the 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 point of it was how can somebody, how can two people who know so much about film have two such different opinions about the same film? Uh, so, and then the, the rest of the semester was uh, a film analysis. So one of the first films we analyzed was apocalypse now, and there were many different elements both both from a cinematic and from a storytelling kind of perspective. So I had never seen the film before I took this class and ever since I saw it during that class, I've seen it many, many times afterwards. And uh, I just, it's one of those films that I just love so much. And I think just 
again, from a cinematic standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint. And if you watch Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about the making of this film, um, when you appreciate the filmmaking process that Francis Ford Coppola went through in shooting this film and the amount of time it took him to do this, I don't think, I think there's a certain um, uh, element of that that you just wouldn't see today in filmmaking. You wouldn't see the uncomfortability of of a no director would go through that kind of discomfort to make a film in this in this day and age i think uh i think if they ran into something that they didn't that was too hard they would digitize it uh whereas he had to work with so many different elements like the philippine government uh the elements the typhoons that sort of thing i think there's just a a discomfort to this that makes you really appreciate what went into making this film so um just from that sort of standpoint just from starting off here that's what i really appreciate about the film is the actual filmmaking process and the 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 cinematic and the storytelling uh part of it that i think francis ford coppola really brings to the big the big screens as it were right and uh, you know just my feedback on it, especially after watching hearts of darkness uh, they shot something like, I don't know, a million feet of film. I don't even know what that translates into in runtime. But it really seems like this was a movie project that they had kind of a rough idea of what they were trying to achieve. And they just shot and shot and shot and overcame obstacle after obstacle, running out of money, m- working with the Philippine military who were actually suppressing rebel rebellions, you know, and sometimes the helicopters would have to go and like make a <laughs> like a strafing run. Uh but then to see them kind of piece it together, it really does seem like they had a fortuitousness and an artistic bent to them, uh, Coppola especially, to be able to turn that into something that um, I think really is hard to understand just watching it the first time. But you can see the the art artistry that went into it. Like I can appreciate it and I want to understand it more. But um, you can definitely tell in some of the later scenes that there's a lot of like cross cross dissolves and where they're like showing Martin Sheen just kind of staring off while Brando's doing soliloquy. And you can tell that he's trying to construct those moments as like kind of like interweaving together. But you can at least I would I was seeing that as like, well, they just shot Sheen just sitting there and then they shot Brando you know, doing his thing. And then later in editing, they brought those things together and made it into what it was. I don't think that was the intention. At least that's not my perception of, of what they were going for there. But they took what they had and turned it into something artistic. If you Yeah, I of- think there's a, there's a rawness to it, but also a very artistic polish to it. And I think that combined, uh, it makes for a really good film. And I'm off the top of my head, I can't think of what, what won Best Picture in, 19, in that year. I think it was 1980. We would have been, because uh, it came out in 1979. So I'm not sure what one best picture in 1980 but just from somebody who studied film and studied the filmmaking process you really appreciate what francis ford coppola went through to to make this film and you just think like well it should have gotten best picture and just because it it just brought together those elements of like raw filmmaking and then just the attention to artistic detail that he went through it it's it's really an amazing film like i mean I think today's audience with the short attention spans, they would have a hard time watching this. But if you really commit yourself to just sitting there for two and a half hours, just the theatrical film release version, 
I think you'll you'll really appreciate what went into making of this film. Right. And and uh, I'll shift this over to Robert and get your reaction on uh, what we've talked about so far. Get you on your opening because you always have a strong open. And what from your watching of the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, do you think that this movie speaks to Vietnam as sort of like a catch 22 of World War II? And how does it play in like, what is the message it's getting out uh, just a few short years after that conflict ended? Well, I've never seen catch 22, but I, you're right. I did see the Vietnam Ken Burns documentary. And I also saw this film and man, I had a strong open. And then you guys start talking and saying all these interesting things that I want to respond to. And now I don't really have an opening. Um, my bad. Sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Um, I, I, I just want to echo some of your guys' thoughts and then I'll maybe try and fold in some sort of an answer to you, dear Daniel. Um, seeing the process or you really get the idea or the feel that this is an authentic type experience. It's very, I don't know how realistic it is necessarily, but it very feels much like an authentic experience in terms of the actors really getting into it. I mean, there are scenes where Martin Sheen is just sweating and he's just sweating and you just, you know that that's a real thing that he actually went through. Um, it, it's very much a contrast to a film like the Phantom Menace where you got George Lucas just sitting back in his chair and his actors are on a green screen and they're like, you're reacting to a big monster right now. And, you know, and they're like, uh, okay. And it's just a very sterile, like nothing. Whereas this film, you're, you're in it. And, and I didn't feel a minute of the runtime. I thought it really zipped along. Maybe I'm an older viewer, but man, I was engaged the entire time. I, I really felt that this is an engaging psychological study of these characters. And I, I assume that's what mainly they were going for but it also turns into a very potent anti-war film and man, yeah, I, nothing but kudos here. You called it a masterpiece or some would call it a masterpiece. I think it's close to, if not. So yeah, I, I, this is, I think the first time I've ever watched the full thing all the way through. And I think I, I only watched the theatrical cut. I didn't, I haven't seen all the other stuff. I don't know if I'm interested enough to watch all that stuff. I, I probably would be really enjoy the hearts of darkness. Um, but man, this is, I don't know if, uh, Francis Ford Coppola is going back and ruining his old movies like George Lucas does, but, uh, I think this, the theatrical cut is really excellent and I would just, I would leave it alone if I were him. Yeah. There was a, uh, an outfit called Scanline, and they analyze films and, and certain uh, phenomena in film. And one of the subjects they did was director's cuts, where they came from, what was the origin, what was the purpose and what are some good examples and what are some bad examples. And of course they do eventually get to George Lucas at the end there kind of, uh, heartily, uh, and in tongue-in-cheek fashion, but around minute 29, and I'll post this on the show notes page, of course, uh, they get into uh, Apocalypse Now and Redux, or Redu, as uh, John was saying in the pre-show, available for Patreon supporters, lastnighter.com slash Patreon, uh, and how the, uh, at least the presenter's opinion was the theatrical cut, it's concise enough, and there's enough going on to keep you interested, and then when they add more scenes, like I think Redux has another 48 minutes or something like that. It's like makes a two and a half hour movie into a three and a half hour. <laughs> and then I don't know what final cut is. It's probably a, maybe a little bit shorter and remastered. But uh, his point was, you know, the theatrical was really good. And then 
if you're really into it, maybe you'll like the other stuff, but it doesn't really add to the film. In fact, it detracts a little bit because it fills in some of the dots that you as a viewer had to fill in on your own. And we've talked about that with, you know, relation to horror films and things where the scarier stuff is what's in your head and it's a subjective experience. And when you get the director going back in and kind of messing around with what they had originally done. And I I know, you know, and John, you can speak to this. I'm sure they're under tremendous pressure, time pressure, money pressure, uh, studio wants one thing, they want to do another thing. So it's really a, a, a long process of just compromise after compromise. And so you can definitely see why someone would, would want to go back and realize their vision a bit more. Uh, recent news just came out. Snyder Cut for Justice League is going to happen on the new HBO Max. And so that's been a thing that, you know, the plebs finally won. They've been complaining for, how, how long have they been complaining about the release of Snyder Cut? Like five, six years? And now it's now it looks like it's going to happen. And in that regard, it's really going to please a lot of people. But, you know, what was the motivation for Coppola? Was it because he had to um, leave so much on the cutting room floor and he was under that time constraint? So he he had a different vision in his head to then go back and, and recut some of the stuff and, and make it into more of what he had intended. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, um, I, I don't know, even know where I'm going with this, but uh, I'll have that scan line thing down on there. And uh, John, I'll just go to you. What, what, what's your take on just the process of wanting to come back? And then I'll go to Robert, because I know you're like dying there. You're, you're looking like a red tomato, not only from the sun you got, but also from, I'm sure, just having all these ideas you want to talk about already. Uh, yeah, well, I just know, like, just from a filmmaking standpoint, and this is where the editing process comes in. When you edit a film, depending on what your 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 goal is, you want the story to go along uh, as concisely as possible. And if you watch the redo version of the Apocalypse Now, there are some scenes in there. Um, the one that stands out in my mind is one where they stop and they go to they stop at a French plantation for dinner, and the premise is that these um, French uh, plantation owners who own property in Vietnam are, you know, really hanging on to this property that they hold in the midst of this war that it ultimately is going to, you know, kick them out. They're not going to have this property anymore, but they're holding on to it as much as as tightly as they can. And Willard is kind of just sitting there having dinner with them and kind of watching them just um, mentally hang on as, as long as they possibly can, even though he knows like this is probably a lost battle for them. Um, But again, in the filmmaking process, this is like, you just want the story to go along. And, and I think that the theatrical version is probably the best version to do that. I think if you're, if if the redo version was the the theatrical version, the one that Coppola might have wanted, but commercially the 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 production company couldn't market it that way. I think that that was the the best way to do it. Um, I think if it had been a four hour version, I think it had a, a, a very high potential to lose its audience, and I think it might not have been as well received as it might have been when it was released. So. I think he made the right decision in in the editing process, but that's that's kind of like the, the thinking that I'm that I'm along with. Um, that I, you know, as much as I appreciate all the 
the intensity that it went into the the scenes that were ultimately deleted from the theatrical version. I think they were the right editing decisions and, you know, it was a long enough film as it was and you needed to keep the story moving. So I think, I think ultimately it was, it was all the right decisions as far as editing process goes. Right. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Like um, the other movie that you did with us reds, it actually had an intermission. And I think if this were any longer, they would need to do something like that uh, for this. Uh, but it is interesting. Um, I haven't actually seen the redo version or the final cut, but I did watch that uh, analysis and they talk about that scene. And they also, I think, show some of it in Hearts of Darkness. And I think it establishes uh, that that French colonial family, they've had that property for a few generations. Like that is home to them. And I, th I think some of that dinner conversation was, well, why don't you go back to France? We're like, well, we may be French, but we've never been there. Or we, you know, we like, this is never... our home. Why would we go back to France? Right. Yeah. We've never lived there. And um, Robert, I'm sure you can speak to this a little bit, especially after watching the Ken Burns stuff. But like in, uh, I think it was the Killing Fields. No. Um, was it that? There were, there was some movie where they talk about the French um, uh, being in Southeast Asia and getting kicked out. And that was like part of the impetus for some of these wars in Southeast Asia. Um, the act maybe, of killing? Mm, I don't know. Well, the act no, of killing was Cambodia. So was the Killing Fields. So maybe I'm mixing it up with something else. Uh, but there, there was a movie where there were a lot of, um, French people who had lived there and it was like in the very early stages of the Vietnam war, like late fifties, early sixties. I can't quite place it right now. And so, you know, this is some stellar content for me, but maybe you can speak to, you know, how that scene that's been cut from this movie, um, and how it relates to establishing some of the conflict, the greater conflict, uh, that's surrounding the Vietnam war. What you're going to me with some scene I've never seen. This is great, Daniel. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I was going to talk about and what I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to do a politician trick where you don't answer the question you were asked. You answer the question you want to answer. You got a great future. Thank you, sir. So, Daniel, like you asked me, um, constraints put on a director. Yes, you're right. Uh, I can see how a director, when they're making a film and they have all this vision that they're unable to achieve at the time due to constraints. So they... Uh, uh, Later on, they're like, I want to achieve my vision and I'll go back and re-edit the movie or add in special effects or whatever. But constraints make for better art. Not always, of course, but in generally speaking, when you have limitations, you can, you're more likely to come up with creative ideas and creative solutions when you don't necessarily have all the money or all the time in the world to do a thing. And you can take advantage of the actors and the creative people around you to solve these issues as opposed to just saying, well, we'll just CGI it and someone else can solve this problem later or in editing or whatever. You can actually solve it on the moment. And then that might inspire to you to create a whole new scene that is just amazing and would make the film a whole lot better. So I, I could see how film has lost a bit of that with the reliance on CGI and special effects and doing things that are removed from reality trying to recreate reality digitally it's you're going to get more of what you've written on the page but you're not necessarily going to expand on that as much as older films would have or really like talented ensemble pieces where characters and actors are riffing off each other and really creating something that isn't necessarily all there on the page already and not yeah, to go not to go on a like off on a tangent about another film that we're not supposed to be talking about but like one of my favorite movies is Jaws 
And if they ever remade Jaws or added to the original version with any kind of digital enhancements, like the, the thing you love about Jaws is that you know the shark is mechanical. And the fact that it was 1974 when they were filming this, and this was the technology they had to make a giant shark come to life as best as they possibly could. And they did a phenomenal job of it. You really appreciate the work that went into that. And if they tried to remake that film or try to digitally enhance it to make the, the shark look more realistic or act more realistic, you would really, it would really take away from the film experience. And I, and I think that George Lucas really effed up, when he went ahead and did more digital enhancements to the original Star Wars films, like looking at those films now as somebody who saw the originals when I was a child, they add nothing to the to the original films. The the digital enhancements add nothing to them. If and anything, think, they just distract you. And I think the, what's the, going the, on? Yeah, what? Right, exactly. And what makes Apocalypse Now so great is again the the sheer suffering that Francis Ford Coppola had to go through like the elements in the Philippine government and everything that was working against him. And he still created a great film, I think really adds to the experience of that film. Yeah. You can see that they laid it out all out on the field, so to speak. Uh, now, one of the things I wanted to mention was, you know, one of the other hardships was that typhoon. And I think it actually destroyed one of their sets. One of those, uh, like, I think the, the village that was, um, right on the riverbank, I think when uh, the Robert Duvall character leads the cavalry charge via helicopter and, and he's looking at the uh, surf break and he's like, look, it breaks two ways and we got to get down there. So, you know, it, it's amazing how this is where the Catch-22 stuff kind of comes in, where there's just this ridiculousness to the war, to the whole concept of the war. Like the reason they chose between the two locations where they could put the boat in was because this one was going to be the better surf spot. And Martin Sheen's uh, narration um, kind of talks about the absurdities and how the clowns are running, four-star clowns are running this war and how um, Marlon Brando's character, Kurtz, is like, the assassins are calling me an assassin. They sent me out here to murder people, but they're calling me the murderer. And it just kind of, I think, showcases how the absurdities of what the orders are and then trying to call it something else rather than what it really is. And how they um, weren't really doing anything noble. You know, it was really just they're there and they don't really know why. So they're kind of coming up with reasons like they, they try to entertain the troops with the Playboy bunnies. And they're just kind of like later on, they, they, they try to rebuild this bridge and then the Vietnamese people destroy it. And then they rebuild it just so that the generals can say that the road's still open. It's really just kind of shows off the ridiculousness of the war and how it was um, uh, persecuted or prosecuted, persecuted, like what they were even, there was real no goal. It was just kind of like, I've heard it called a war of attrition. You know, it was just like, okay, well, we're going to kill people. They're going to kill people. And it's kind of going to be a stalemate. Uh, and it became pretty unwinnable after a while. And, and I think that um, the generals didn't realize that until a bit too late. Well, and I forget, it's not mentioned in this film or or I think even the Ken Burns documentary, but there have been multiple documentaries, of course, on the Vietnam War. And I don't remember which one I saw. I apologize. So I'm just going to be talking out of my ass here for a second. But there are films that go into the um, the Air Force and the bombing campaign in northern Vietnam and how they were just not allowed 
to hit many, many places, like many, many key military targets. They were just not allowed from whoever up on above or not, but they just were not. And they, they claimed that it was, you know, they were being handcuffed and like not being allowed to win the war. So I don't know, that kind of leads into more conspiratorial kind of, you know, ideas that it was more about, well, who knows exactly what it was all about, but maybe more about um, just getting the, the I don't know, money to the military industrial complex and keeping the war going longer. But um, I wish I could speak in more specifics, but it's been so long since I've seen those documentaries, but they're all right. out there and available. I mean, there is, of course, the, um, what was it, the fog of war or why we fight where, uh, who was it? The Secretary of Defense at the time was it McNamara? He admitted that the Gulf of Tonkin incident uh, was really just a ploy to get the United States involved in the war. Uh, so there was a tacit admission. It, it's not conspiracy. It's well, I mean, it was conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy theory, which is just used to shut down uh, dissent. And I think that was actually um, a coin termed a term coined <laughs> by um, by the. Uh, was it the FBI or, or whoever, when people were investigating the JFK assassination, they're like, well, we're going to label them conspiracy theorists and discredit them just with that word alone. And uh, you still see it today with all the uh, current pandemic stuff. You know, anything that's against the MSNBC, CNN narrative gets labeled as conspiracy and even gets demonetized, shut down, removed, banned, uh, corrected on Facebook, um, pointed out as a uh, uh, fact-checked and who who fact checks the fact checkers, you know, and they're usually uh, pretty hilariously wrong uh, most of the time. And I don't mean to divert us away from from this movie, but um, it kind of goes back into, you know, like who knows why certain things were happening, but they weren't doing things that were going to result in them actually winning anything. If anything, it was there seemingly to prolong the war uh, and to. I guess, expend resources and justify more resources coming their way, sort of like the bureaucratic process of uh, increasing budgets by spending everything you have uh, been allotted uh, the prior, prior year so that you can justify getting more the next year. Well, you're spending other people's money. So what do you care? Right. And and uh, I, at Curse at the end, he he's like reading off something into, uh, he's recording it audioly. Audioly? Is that how you say that? But he's Audibly. like- Audibly. And he's like, these people will let us bomb and destroy and kill, but they won't let us write shit or fuck on the bomb because it's obscene. It's like, okay, let's get our priorities straight here. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're trying to play this moral high ground in one arena, but they're doing these monstrous atrocities in the other area. And it, it kind of reminds me of how people are upset about how Trump says something or tweets something mean or uh, on PC, but they're, they're totally like ignoring all the things to legitimately be upset with them about. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a funny world we live in. It's very Orwellian in many respects. Yeah. So I don't know if, um, Coppola went into the making of this film with the in military industrial complex in mind, but there's definitely, to your point, there's definitely something, especially with the Kilgore. I mean, Willard is given these orders that, he has to assassinate this general because he is going beyond the control of the regular military. And he, you know, Willard meets up with Kilgore and Kilgore decides that the, the place where Willard wants to go is a great surfing spot. So while he wasn't planning on totally decimating that village, 
sounds like a good idea now because it's a great surfing spot. So he Willard does make the point of of if they're why would they want to assassinate Kurtz when Kilgore is kind of doing his own thing as well? Um, like what do they really have against Kurtz that that they didn't have against Kilgore? And I think more along the lines is that Kilgore could be controlled, whereas Kurtz, to his I guess credit, if you want to say, um, he went in there the before the the war really got started as kind of like a fact finding mission. And that's when at 38, he went into the special forces because he understood what it would take to win that war. I mean, he was still a soldier. He was still committed to winning the war. So he did what he thought was necessary. And he took the attitude of what he thought he needed to take in order to win that war. And it just happened to be to a point where the, established military leadership wasn't ready to accept what he was ready to do but you know to his credit i mean like if he wanted to win the war that's probably what he wanted to do because um as he stated um the Viet Cong who he encountered had the will to do certain things that the regular american army wasn't willing to do and he was going to have to kind of match their will kind of match their kind of insanity or their commitment to winning the war that the, the regular generals weren't willing to do. So while I don't think Coppola had the military industrial complex in mind, I think there was a certain element of, yes, there's this establishment that wants to prolong a war, but here comes Kurtz who really wants to finish the war and he's truing it by whatever means he thinks are really necessary to win that war, even though it, it might wrap it up in a shorter time than uh, the military industrial complex is willing to accept. Right. Yeah. And, and to your point, um, Kurt saw the, the will of these people sort of in the Kaiser Sose sense, you know, show these men of will, what will really was uh, because Kurtz was admiring how, after they inoculated the the children against polio, they cut the arms off, uh, I guess, because they thought that, you know, this inoculation was something bad or, or whatever. And they were willing to go to that extreme to protect the the lives of those kids by even hacking their arms off. And Kurtz said, you know, that's like brilliant and genius, magnificent. And just having the, the will to do that. And if I had uh, 10,000 people like that, I could win this war. And I think uh, Willard saw that as well. He He makes mention many times of how while he's sitting there in a hotel room in Saigon drinking his, you know, drinking himself to a stupor and smashing glass, which really happened, by the way, in Hearts of Darkness, you see this where Sheen was really super drunk and really did bust his hand up on the glass. But uh, he makes mention many times of how while he's resting or while they're, you know, watching the Playboy Bunnies or whatever, Charlie's out there getting stronger while he's getting weaker. And so you kind of see some of the parallels with Kurtz and Willard sort of being in alignment in their perspective on things. And I think it's like a a bringing together of those two characters uh, in the narrative throughout the story where Kurtz is, you know, definitely gone towards the side of madness. Like when you get to the, the final area where he's at, you know, I mean, there's torture victims, heads strewn about. I mean, he's definitely kind of taken his, uh, He's, he's lost his sanity, but he's still brilliant. You know what I mean? And and it's like, he's not wrong just because he's crazy. In fact, he's kind of right. It's just how he's reacting to that that's maybe a bit too far. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think, again, like my point, like he is a soldier. And if his task is to win the war, then, I mean, this is not a traditional enemy like uh, the U.S. Army fought in World War II or World War I. Uh, this is a totally different kind of enemy that they've never seen before. And Kurtz understood pretty quickly what he would need to do in order to uh, defeat that enemy. And if the, 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 the regular army, if the regular military leadership wasn't ready to do that, he was going to have to do it on his own. And I think that's where the story kind of, of, of picks up in the, in the sense that um, you're really seeing what they think of as madness but i mean if you're if you're going against this enemy that is going to spare nothing or going to is going to sacrifice everything in order to defend its homeland then you have to meet that will with with equal will so he's doing exactly what he probably needed to be done but wasn't in line with the way the traditional u.s military was really ready to handle it right, right. Yeah, they're more weren't willing to nap- napalm women and children but not go to the extremes of, um, I guess, what Kurtz had become known by the enemy by name because of how, I guess, with the torture and the dismemberment, like that gave him a certain notoriety and they feared him. It was a warlord kind of reputation. Yeah, like and, a god- and, and a godlike figure too. He was he was being worshipped. Uh, Robert, you were about to chime in. Sorry, I keep, I keep derailing you. Yeah, I, I've, I've got thoughts piling through my brain and then it just gets derailed. So I don't know. It is what it is. Um, I'll just take my time here and I'll go through one of my notes and see how this Perfect. goes. So first of all, I wanted to mention that the narration in this movie is fantastic. Uh, normally like narration is like seen as lazy storytelling, but in this film, I, I loved it. It was Sheen's tone as he's speaking about his experience and what's happening. It just really sets the tone for the film really gets you settled in for what's about to happen. So, uh, I mean, it's not as good as Blade Runner's narration, but what else? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, originally, the military says that Kurtz has gone insane. First of all, they play this little clip of him talking, and you could take anyone out of context and make them sound crazy. You could take anything I've said out of context and make me sound like a lunatic. I'm sure you could do that with anybody and any recorded situation anywhere now i would say obviously the kurtz has lost a little bit of touch but like you guys have said he was fighting fire with fire and he saw the incredible will of a defending peoples and what it would take to defeat that will because you have to break that will to fight because an invading force is never going to have be able to match the will of a defending force because you are fighting for blood and soil and yes i was going to use that phrase for our scheduled guest but that's fine i'll still use it uh, because it said charlie had two ways home death or victory that's what willard says at one point in narration and it's absolutely true especially since the u.s troops didn't even know why they were there and the the the, the goal post was constantly moving and shifting i mean it was the gulf of tonkin but what was even that uh, they kind of attacked us did they even no it was just ridiculous um then they were fighting communism because of the domino theory what does that even mean? I mean, it's not anything really concrete to wrap your wrap your hands around as to, I mean, these people impose no threat to my family or anything like that. So why am I over here killing them? You know, it's, it, a defending army is going to be able to go all out. Anyway. Okay. Second of all, the military declaring Kurt's insane because they stopped following orders 
And actually, Kurtz is just doing what they think he thinks he needs to do to survive and to help prosecute the war. So, I mean, it's just them declaring somebody insane because they're not doing what you say. Basically, they didn't really have any kind of moral high ground. And they said he executed some counter what some double agents, but who weren't really double agents. But then when he did kill them, all the all the intelligence seemed to stop. All the attacks stopped. Yeah. So apparently he was right. He was right. But they just didn't like his methods. So basically what the military wants is a dog on a leash. They don't want that mad dog off the leash to go about acting independently. So they love mad dogs. They just want them on the leash and following orders. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I wrote down here when they sent Willard in to kill Kurtz. I was like, is this a moral activity? Would they feel justified doing it themselves? Would they be acting in defense of another? I mean, they, he's killing Viet Cong. I don't know. I just seems ridiculous. Um, and then, of course, Willard says charging a man with murder in this place is like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500 because there's just murder, death all over the place. That's just perfectly fine. You kill a man in one situation and it's murder. You kill a man in the other situation and you give him metal. It's just all along with the arbitrary rules of war of whatever they say. In the, in the rules of war, basically just do as we say not according to any kind of moral imperative. Um, yeah, and uh, Charlie, don't surf. I got that, that note. That's, that's good. Maybe they yeah. would surf if they had the leisurely time to uh, and the wealth to do that there, uh, buddy. That's a, that's a good point, yeah. And by the way, I do love uh, Duval's character in this. Uh, he's, he's great. Probably one of the most memorable performances in this. Yep, yep, yep. So I got I got way more notes, but that was just a little bit of salvo. I wanted to get out there because I was being frustrated not being able to say that stuff. But go ahead. I, I, I love this conversation. Keep it going. All right. Well, now now I feel derailed because I, I feel that I should admonish myself for derailing you. Yes, you should absolutely feel ashamed. <laughs> All right. So so, John, um, from just a, a, a film study perspective, um and all the work that went into this, I mean, is it common, do you think, for somebody to shoot like so much more material uh, than is actually used and to kind of not really have a full conception of what their final product is going to be as they're making it? It seemed like they were doing a lot of like adjustments on the fly. I, I recall that this is based on a, um, a novelization or a novel of uh, somebody going up a river in Africa and finding somebody who had been. Um, there for a few years and it becomes sort of a deity to the native people there and they're traveling up the river and there's a bunch of um i guess somewhat insensitive language of the time of the period uh that went into this and i think it was called was it called the heart of darkness i think the book yeah it was called heart of darkness um the documentary about apocalypse now is called hearts of darkness plural um and i think that kind of uh reflects the the different uh people uh who were in the, involved in the making of the film not just not just francis ford coppola but the actors um who kind of went through their own journey like their dark journey in making this film um from a cinematic standpoint i mean just from i can tell you from the analysis standpoint um there are are, are various kind of elements you should be looking for in this like from the very beginning the song by the doors the end um, and you see the bombing uh, going on for the helicopters. Um, that is, we discussed this. It's not really explicitly 
um, established, but we think that this is the end of the film in which Willard has called in the airstrike of Kurtz's compound. And you see the, the bombing of uh, the, the, the napalming of everything there um, and kind of the, the breakdown of, of, of Willard's kind of uh, mental uh, state at that point. Um, and certain things that uh, the lighting of the thing, like the, the very last sequence, or I should say one of the last sequences involving Kurtz it's himself is there's always this shadow that seems to be going over half of his face and that's to connotate the, the 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 conflict between the good and the evil of somebody who's going through like a, a maddening state of mind. So it's it, from a cinematic standpoint, it's a very interesting film um, to to just to, to analyze from a visual standpoint. And I think, as far as storytelling goes, I think there are several elements of this that that you can go through. Um, I think the Playboy Bunny scene in 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 particular, I think, connotates the kind of basic primal instincts that drive men who are in battle. Like they feel like they're about to die any day, so they might as well act like savage creatures going after you know these these beautiful women who are who are dropped into the middle of this of this crowd. So it's it's. I could go on and on about like the different scenes here, but I think like there are, if you, if you look at it from scene to scene to scene, you can find different things about commentary on war that drives men to certain primal instincts for lack of a better term that, uh, that we, that we kind of, that we associate with war. Yeah. That, that kind of makes a lot of sense. And I think that also ties into the, the will of the people defending in contrast to, the guys who, yeah, they could die any day, but they don't even know why they're there. So they're being entertained and then sent out into these, uh, you know, into the jungle and, and potentially getting shot. Uh, yeah, and, that's, that's that's why we have, there's always a morale problem with any invading army. It's, it's, right. it's always, morale problems are way less common in defending defending armies. And the crew on that boat, you see, um, you know, Mr. Clean, who's like the 17-year-old kid who's, like you know, he's from Brook, uh, I think at the Bronx, and this is the first time he's he's out of an urban area, and you know he's he just doesn't know how to kind of deal with it. You know he's kind of laid back, and but when it comes time to kill, he's a trained killer. Um, he doesn't think of anything of of mowing down those people on that boat with that with that uh, machine gun. Um, whereas uh, Lance, the surfer dude from from California, you know, once he drops acid, he's in a perfect state of mind to kind of meld with Kurtz's tribe as it were. And so you, you just get like the, the, the kind of madness that uh, the, the, the state of war creates and you see how it affects different people depending on where they're from and what kind of state of mind they're in when they enter the field of war. So I think that's, a very interesting commentary when you're watching that film as well. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to ask um, with Kurtz, they had sent another person to try to kill him previously. And that guy ended up joining Kurtz. And I'm just curious, what does that tell us in the film in that he was willing to join Kurtz, but when Willard got there, Kurtz was almost like, okay, this is the guy I want to kill me. Like I want to have that honorable soldier's death. So he had already known that 
the brass wanted him dead when they sent that first assassin to kill him. Uh, did Kurtz not respect that guy's abilities enough to have him be the one to kill him? And, and he took him into the fold to help him, you know, persecute the war the way he wanted to. And then when Willard got there, he was like, all right, this is the guy. This is how I want to go out. Well, my sense is that the first guy who came to kill him, I think that Kurtz tested him in the way he tested Willard. You know, you know, he beheaded for Willard. He beheaded his, uh, the, the chef. Um, he put him through all kinds of tests as it were. I think when I, and I, his name is totally uh, escaping my mind, but the first guy who was supposed to come and assassinate Kurtz, I think that once he got there and he saw what was going on, he was much more, um, well, hey, you know, I'm a soldier. We're supposed to win this war. This Kurtz has the right idea, so I'm going to join this guy. Whereas Willard seemed to be more committed to carrying out the mission and, um, you know, fulfilling his obligations as a soldier, whereas Kurtz kind of respected that. He's like, all right, well, this is how I'm going to go out. Then I want this guy to do it. So I, I like, I know this can't go on forever. So if I'm going to die, I'm going to let this guy who is committed to his mission as I am to mine, that I'm going to let him do the deed. Whereas the other, the, the previous guy, he was just too much of a, like a, a sucker as it were, he was too malleable and he just went along with whatever I say. I don't really respect him. So, but Willard, he's really committed to the mission. So I'm just going to let him do, do the deed and put me out of my misery. Yeah. And, I would say that Willard, he really recognized Willard as a, a fellow soldier, a fellow committed soldier. And at one point he says, you have a right to kill me, but you have no right to judge me. Meaning it's like, as one soldier kills another in an act of war, it's like an act of necessity, not necessarily as an act of a judgment on your past actions. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I would dip into that and say, well, what is killing, but an act of judgment, you're either judging that you're afraid of what they're going to do in the future or any, you know, any number of reasons. But anyway, it's, it's, it, you're, you're right. Um, he saw him as a, a fellow soldier committed to do his job. Yeah, it's almost surprising in a way because how Willard is like analyzing the actions and the, the dossier on Kurtz and how it disagrees with the nature of the mission and what he was told. You would think that our hero in this story would be one to rise above that and not just blindly follow these orders because they happen to be the orders, even if he recognizes how wrong they are. So that's a right. little bit surprising. Right. So it seemed it seemed to me that he was only going to kill him because he knew that Kurtz wanted him to. I think he was going to not do it up until that point. Do you guys do, disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is a certain amount of truth to that in the sense that uh, Kurtz really, again, knew this couldn't go on forever. And he knew that he was going to die eventually. Somebody was going to kill him eventually. So he wanted the right person to do it. And, and I think there might've been some kind of setup to that in the very first, one of the very first scenes where the, the general and the CIA are there and they give Willard his mission and they, they kind of test him. They said, well, have you ever heard of the assassination of this person? And he said, well, I'm not at liberty to say that. And he would never, he would never divulge uh, the, the details of the missions he'd, he had been on before because he was very committed to, well, I was told I could never talk about these. I was ordered that I was I was sworn to secrecy with regards to these other missions. So they knew they could trust him. And I think throughout his mission, he committed to 
that sort of mentality where I'm on a mission. I've been charged to kill this guy. Um, and I'm going to carry that through as much as possible. And I think that the more Kurtz grew to know that he was this kind of person, the more he understood that this was the right person to kind of put him out of his misery as it were. Right. Yeah. He, he said, I'm not presently disposed to discuss such an operation if it did in fact exist, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, and I wonder if, um, was there a scene in this movie where they talk about there's something going on with the war and if the press got a hold of it, they would catch wind that it's not winnable? Um, because I wonder if Kurtz realized that and that's why he was like, okay, not only can this not go on forever, but how they're prosecuting this war, we're never going to win this thing. I'm the only one doing it the way that it needs to be done and, and they're not going to support this. So we're going to end up losing this anyway. And so when Willard got there and he was a man of will like himself, he was willing to go out that way with that soldier's death. Well, as part of the dossier that Willard was going over during his boat trip, um, there was a point where uh, the, the, the generals in charge of executing the war did not, he noted that he did not, they did not like what uh, Kurtz had to tell them in his initial fact finding mission. I mean, like I, you can only assume that he told them like, Mm -hmm we're not able to win this war unless we're willing to do, unless we're willing to commit to the level that the Viet Cong or the, 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 the indigenous people are willing to commit to. So I think there is a little element of that in the sense that, uh, yeah, if, if we're going to, if we're going to commit to this war, we have to go all in. And if we're not going to do that, then we might as well get the hell out of there. And I don't think that uh, that initial report that Kurtz gave them, they pretty, they, they liked that much. So, that wasn't going to execute. I, th- I think there's like a, a certain element of we were talking before about full metal jacket. I think there's an element to the soldier that people don't want soldiers. They don't want thinking human beings. They want robots. So if you're, if you're not going to go in and commit mindlessly to killing the enemy without thought, without conviction, without thinking about, well, this is another human being I'm killing, then you know, you might as well just pack up and go home because you're not the kind of person that they need in in executing a war. Now, in any of the director's cuts, I'm sure you've seen them. Was there any epilogue to the film? Because in the theatrical cut, it just goes to black after the doors start playing again. And you see the, what do you call it, where there's the, the two images and they, they have um, Willard and like this temple or this... Uh, stone figurine kind of like melding into one and then it goes to black. Is there anything in the redo or the final cut that is beyond that other than just credits? Honestly, I I haven't seen the redo version in quite a long time. Um, I'm very familiar with the theatrical version. I know the last part is, yeah, it's very, the closing of it is very uh, unusual in the sense that they don't do credits. You know, they they don't go through like the director and the key grip and all the the credits of the union, the unionized Hollywood crews usually get as far as uh, as as credit to the to the film making of the film. Um, but I do know that the 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 statue that you're referring to is the Buddha, and they refer to that many times in the analysis in, the, in my film analysis class in in the sense that the Buddha is kind of like the ultimate achievement of enlightenment and Willard 
and Kurtz are kind of conflicting figures in that. Like, whereas as Kurtz thinks he has the ultimate enlightenment in, in the sense that he knows what he has to do in order to win this war, you know, uh, Willard is very conflicted in what's right, uh, whether it's killing Kurtz is the right thing to do or, or letting him go on and, and doing what he's doing is so it's, it's, it's a very conflicting kind of imagery where you have Willard and the Buddha and Kurtz and the Buddha and that sort of thing. So it's, it's not concrete in its interpretation, but it's, it's sort of left to the viewer to kind of um, kind of go through that analysis themselves and see what, and understand what they can come up with themselves. Right. And, and I like the use of the same song at the end as at the beginning, it kind of bookends the whole thing and brings it together. Like the opening is really strong. And I even noticed that just the, the different, moments in the music corresponded to what you see on the screen and i'm sure that was all done in editing like trying to find where those pieces line up uh to to cut it that way i'm sure they weren't shooting and being like all right this is what we're going to do we're going to use the doors the end and we're going to shoot this and when this music rises at this point we're going to time that with an explosion that happened to occur uh but when you watch it i mean you if if you're if you watch just the first 5 minutes with that in mind, I mean, I think you'll see it. I, I notice it right away. They're like, this is purposefully placed in this way, in this order, in this, you know, the visuals and the music go together and the helicopter rotors, and then it becomes the ceiling fan in the hotel room that he's in, in Saigon. It's, it's just, I don't know, just kind of is high-minded, it seems, like it's how that poetry. came together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely powerful imagery. It's it's yeah. It's one of the reasons why I think it's cinematically it's it's such a great film as far as um yeah just perfect cinematography, perfect editing, yeah like matching up the music to the to the visuals. I think it's it's really a masterful job. And the character convergences like with Willard and Kurtz. I mean Willard goes on this journey to kill Kurtz, but all along the way he's learning about the man and he's coming to respect the man. And he's recognizing how much of himself he sees in him, like how they both detest lies is one of the big things. So they're just sick of the lies that comes out of the, the military and their conducting of the war. They just want honesty. They like with the, when they kill that group of people on the boat, they stop for a routine inspection of this little fishing boat and they go and they, they kill all these people. But then there's one sort of alive and then the book tells them that they need to keep her alive and take her to the nearest like station. And he's just like, no, we, we killed these people. This, this is what happens in war. This is what you sent us out to do. This is what we're doing. This is what happens. I'm sick of these lies. And then you recognize with Kurtz and Kurtz is a similar disposition. And he, uh, it's, it's just a really nice way to tell a story where the, the protagonist and sort of the antagonist, although the antagonist is any number of things, but where they're, they're really just in two different places, but you could easily switch them almost. And they would be, it'd be a similar story. Yeah. That, that boat scene was kind of interesting. And I wonder what the purpose of it was. Maybe it was to show the guy following the orders to the T and, and the um, destruction that results because anytime you have, it's like they, they, they went by the book to have the interaction, but had the interaction not even occurred, which is what, Willard was saying, hey, don't bother. You know, your mission is to get me upriver. But the captain was like sort of in this power struggle, but also like, well, it's a routine check and we're authorized to do so. And so we're going to do it. 
but he put those elements in that position and then it blew up into murder because clean was like jumpy with the gun with the with the 60 and it reminds and I, think that, I think that's the the point is that the mission whether it's willard's mission or the the overall mission to defeat the Viet Cong in vietnam i think you cannot let death get in the way of your mission so if you even if you have to kill innocent people like that girl who's trying to protect her puppy if you have to kill her in order to progress your mission uh you can't deviate from certain humanities in the sense that like well she's still alive we have to get her to a hospital like no like i'm on a mission and we can't stop and put her put her in a hospital we have to go on so i'm just going to end this right now and that's that's how little human life is valued in war is that if you if you are in a mission to win if you or you're in a, on a mission to kill kurtz like you just can't let the thought of losing innocent life stop you from fulfilling that mission right i even i was saw a little bit different in that Willard was like, hey, we shouldn't have even been involved here. This this is obviously something we shouldn't have done. But now that we've done it, we can't now pretend that we're going to help this person. Like, we've made this mistake. Let's just move on. We're not going to save her. And we have this mission to do, like, to your point. And Robert, you're going to say something along the lines of bringing these elements together, bringing an interaction that causes the potential for, I think, a harmful situation like this. Yeah, I was going to liken it to like anti-drug laws and so, that sort of thing in this country where if you didn't have these laws on the books, there wouldn't be a cause for the cops to pull over people and set up these situations or to give them a cause to break into someone's house at 3 a.m. and not declare who you are and have the people fight back and then murder them all down and shoot your dog and all these things. It, Having these laws on the books, having these codes of conduct of war of these things that you have to do morally or immorally, it's going to set up chances. Even if 99% of the time, every little check of a boat is going to go just fine. Every you know 99 times you're going to pull over someone and there isn't going to be a horrific murder. It sets up an op- opportunity for something to go wrong, for somebody to misinterpret some action or someone to just act like normally would when someone threatens you with murder and defend themselves and then have some kind of tragedy occur. Yeah. And, and was the, um, was the captain of the boat also technically a captain? So he and Willard were on the same rank. And so there was a little bit of a push back and forth because Willard did sort of say, Hey, let's not do this. But the other guy, the captain of the boat didn't heed that as an order. So he went and did his own thing anyway but then after these events we're we're more issued a command like no i'm in charge you're here because it's my mission you're here to do what i need so was that kind of part of that scene as well like a little bit of a power struggle and then willard finally asserting his i guess rank or his priority yeah and i thought that like like hierarchy of chain of command it was very clear in the military but I guess in an actual practice, maybe in theory, it's better than in practice. And in practice, it's more a little bit more chaotic than that. Yeah, they make another scene at the bridge where he's asking, "Who's the who's the CEO here?" And he's, and and they're all like, "Well, aren't you? I mean, you're you're a captain, aren't you in yeah. charge?" Yeah, <laughs> John, I know you were about to reply. So I know, and like, uh, yeah, it's interesting that I think that there is a, a certain hierarchical struggle there. In the sense that, well, yeah, that's his boat. But like you said, that he wouldn't 
he wouldn't be this far up the river if it wasn't for him. So it's, he really has to take his lead. And, and I think obviously the people on that boat that they stopped would have been better off if, if the guy had just taken Willard's lead and just passed him by and, and, and that massacre would didn't have to happen. But uh, I think, I think ultimately like the, the, the whole trip over that, up that river is, um, and the, the analysis, the, 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 the reading that Willard's doing about Kurtz is kind of leading up to um, the decision Kurt, Willard has to make because obviously Willard could very much fall into the trap of madness that Kurtz fell into. And he could just as easily have joined Will, uh, Kurtz if he wanted to, like the, the previous assassin did. Um, but I think you know, he had to make the decision as to where that madness was going to end. And was he going to let it affect him to the point where he wasn't going to do his, he wasn't going to execute his mission anymore. Um, so I think the constant struggle between what doing what's right and fulfilling the mission and not giving into the madness is ultimately where I think the story has to go. And I think we're, we're, we're watching that transpire as we, join him on this journey and the the opportunities that willard had to fall into like madness especially on that bridge that you're talking about where everybody's just lost it and they they don't know who the commanding officer is i think the he had opportunity after opportunity to just say like this is madness i'm just going to give in to madness but he he kept to his mission and he never lost focus of it so i think it's uh it's kind of telling the 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 conflict of war where you can give into your most basic primal instincts versus kind of giving, I don't know what you would call it civilized, but sort of like the, the civilized structured military mission of, of winning the war or, or fulfilling your mission and uh, making that choice. Yeah. I don't know if that necessarily counts as sanity though. Right. Like no, there's a clear cut. Uh, there's not a clear cut divide yeah. between fulfilling your mission. That's sane not fulfilling your mission that's insanity but right? but it's definitely a conflict though it's it's and in war is never like a black and white situation where and whatever you decide to do is the is the right thing to do so it's it's yeah it's definitely uh an irrational kind of predicament that he was in yeah uh yeah i'm not sure what the takeaway from the movie is did uh willard commit the same choice at the end i i don't know uh, should he have joined Kurtz? I, I don't know if that would be the insane choice. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, it, it kind of goes along the lines of like everybody who's the soldiers who are coming back now from Iraq or Afghanistan or, or where or the Middle East in general who are experiencing P PTSD. I think Willard was definitely going to experience PTSD when he came back from Vietnam. So it's it's kind of putting our soldiers in these constant moral predicaments that they have to make the choice of whether they're going to do the right thing in the sense of like their, their military mission, or are they going to do the right thing in as far as their moral capacity to make judgments? So I think it's, it's definitely a, a statement on the madness that war can bring upon a, a regular man. Well, just the madness of war itself and the inherent aspects of it, of having some guy uh, 10,000 miles away, tell you that this guy that this neither of you have ever met before needs to die and that you need to be the one to kill him and for the necessity of for whatever what what reason why am i here to stop communism what i mean what what kind because of esoteric idea what yeah 
how is this guy gonna killing this guy gonna stop okay whatever just because the guy with the stars on his shoulder say so yeah i mean that's that's a madness in itself yeah and then there was also just a blatant disregard for just even the people that they were supposedly protecting like you see that when they first get into the river and lance is back behind the boat skiing and and they um get the wake up on one of the skiffs and bowl it over and they say something derogatory at them you know uh it, it I think that was one of those lies that Kurtz recognized and, and probably Willard saw it too, especially in that moment, because that was like one of the early scenes where he is getting to know the crew of the boat, you know, and he's probably seeing like what jackasses they are being to the people that they're supposedly protecting. Yeah. Speaking of the boat, how appropriate is the name of the boat? The Erebus named after the Greek God of darkness and shadow. A God that's born out of chaos. I think it's just maybe it's a little on the nose, maybe not. I don't know, but I, I appreciated that. Yeah, I think that's pretty on the nose. Yeah, there there are a lot of little uh, writings on the boat, like the the back of the um, the sixties said um, "can't heat," and then there was something else that was in the um, the seating area of it. I forget what that said, but there were like little I don't know rock and roll type references uh, all over that boat. Yeah, no, it seemed it seemed like an authentic experience. Yeah, so um, we've been going uh, already over an hour. I, I knew this was going to be a little bit of a longer episode, but I just want to throw it out there. Robert, I'm sure you've got some more notes that you wanted to get to. So let's just um, get a few of those out and then we'll get into final summary and review. And I'm going to bring back my black and gold or black and red uh, scoring. I, I, I like that. It's more like that thumbs up, thumbs down thing. So what Best else do movie you ever, Worst movie ever? Okay. Well, I just wanted, I, I talked about most of the things here. Um, I just when I before I really watched the film today or recently this past few I just I knew what was famous about the film the things that have lived on in the culture the the right of the Valkyries the smell of napalm in the morning smelling like victory those kind of the horror the horror that Jim Carrey mocked in uh, what was it I forget but uh, Dumb and Dumber maybe I don't know Ace Ventura no Cable Guy Cable Guy it was Cable Guy Cable Guy there we go but um. Those films, I mean, those those scenes are famous in the culture because they're so, I mean, they're iconic, they're unique, and it's just really powerful stuff in a great film um, that should never existed. I mean, this movie doesn't exist unless the Gulf of Tonkin happens, and the Gulf of Tonkin is a manufactured event, like Daniel was talking about, admitted bullshit, and uh, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. Millions more were affected by Agent Orange and any number of PTSD and other things. I mean, Agent Orange, have you ever seen the babies that were born after this war to the people of Vietnam? It's horrific, horrific. I mean, they look like Quado on a good day, like horrific. Um, so yeah, this is uh, a movie that shouldn't exist and it's, it's beautiful and uh, almost a masterpiece. So yeah, um, okay, this is my final summary review, guys. This is right. uh, you can you can call it black and gold, Daniel. But um, man, this is like a nine. This is so good, and I'm kind of weird that I'm only watching it for the first time so late in life. Not that I'm gonna die anytime <laughs> soon. Jeez, it sounded morbid. But uh, yeah, this is amazing. Uh, from the acting, the directing, the writing, just the world that they created. Even though I mean they're going off plenty of source material, of course. But um, a, a severely authentic film that I think will will last the test of time. These, Much like uh, Napoleon Dynamite, it's a film that is like a capsule 
that will be watched can be watched decades and centuries from now and still gotten the full experience out of because it is just an authentic time capsule film. So really good, really excellent. 9.0. All right. Very good. Well, <clears throat> since you've started the trend of uh final summary review, I guess I'll do mine as well. And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned uh, Napoleon dynamite because we did that a few weeks ago and, and to bring that in the same level as this one, I think is a bit surprising though. I still love Napoleon dynamite, but this movie is, is really awesome. Um, and I feel like I need to watch it again to like truly understand it. And it's maybe one of those films that it is a bit of a subjective experience. And, and the more you watch it, the more you kind of glean from it and kind of can, um, I don't know, theorize and work out in your head because there does seem to be so many uh, different little nuggets of, of things you could take in various directions. There's, there's morality arguments, good versus evil. There's following orders, the absurdities of war, the contradictory orders, uh, all of the juxtaposition that's going on in this. And I think it's just, uh, it's, they took something that had so much hardship and you see it on the screen and they were able to turn something into an artistic uh, and beautiful film. And so I'm going to go with the black and gold on this thing all day long. Uh, I might even watch hearts of darkness again, uh, just to like get another appreciation after seeing the film. Uh, and Robert, I'll, I'll recommend it to you. If, if you don't have access to it, um, the next time you're over here, uh, I'd be happy to watch it with you. It's it's really good. And so black and gold for me. And uh, we'll go to you, John. Yeah, well, you lost me at Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, so gosh, yeah, bad, bad, bad reference for that. But yeah, this is this is one of my favorite all time films. And probably because it was one of the first films I uh, had to analyze as far as like my uh, film school curriculum at Temple University. So it has a special place in my heart. And I, I, I agree with everything you said about like, you know, the, the conflicts of war, the, 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 the conflict between good and evil within every man. Um, and I think just as far as like a, a filmmaking process, I think this is like one of the few, uh, the one of the last few films that are that should be remembered for like the painstaking process in making a really good film that the, the a filmmaker has to go through um, something that I like I, I echoed earlier I I don't think that a lot of filmmakers these days are going to have to go through so I think that Coppola was really committed to telling this story and I think he did it in a really masterful way in a very ad hoc way in a very um, complicated way. Um, but I think it really stands the test of times. And for younger audiences, I just ask if you're going to watch this film, please have the patience, please like block off an entire afternoon to watch this or an entire evening to watch this and really commit to it. And I think it, it really is good to see this a few times because I think you miss certain things um, the first time that you'll see that you'll notice again in, in the, in the second or third time you see it. So um, love this film 9.2 out of 10 stars for me. All right. Very good. Thank you for that, John. And, and I'll just reiterate that. Yeah. I think that people should block out the time because it is a slow build and you kind of need that to get kind of enveloped into the concepts of what's going on. And kind of, I mean, you get to learn about Kurtz along the way, along with Willard so that when Kurtz finally is revealed, you kind of have something to build with, you know, and, and if you're not paying attention or you break it up into, you know, multiple sessions of viewing, unfortunately, like I had to do, um, I think it loses some of that poetry, 
you know, it's kind of this long prose and you kind of need all that build up, all that lead up to get to the payoff at the end. And I would almost say like after the first time you watch it, then watch Hearts of Darkness just to see, just to appreciate what really went into the making of the film. And then when you watch it the second time, you'll really appreciate the film for what it is and, and the, the awesome story it tells. All right. I will agree with that as well. It's just three guys agreeing with each other. It's kind of what we do here on this show. And uh, you can find the show notes and more at uh, lastnighters.com slash 125. And uh, John, thank you so much for being our guest. We had you on for And the Band Played On recently. Part of that was Reds and part of that was The Aviator. We'll, of course, have uh, all of those prior appearances on our show notes page. Uh, you can also find this on the Launchpad Media. You can also find us on Patreon. You can give us some dollar dollar bills so that uh, you know people can feed their cats uh, and other uh, such things that need to happen. And uh, Robert, I think next week we're going to um, bring back "Raised from the Dead," so to speak, the uh, wonderful Pat McFarlane from Liberty oh. Weekly. He uh, he has put his show on hiatus, but he's still uh, a very good friend and a smart guy. And he, he did an analysis of the film uh, that we're going to be talking about with him a couple of years ago on his own show. And so I'll, of course, have that on the show notes page. In fact, I'll put it on this show notes page so that you all listeners can uh, maybe check that out before we record with him. Uh, American Psycho. Which oh, yeah. I remember a, us talking, mentioning that multiple times over the years, talking about American Psycho and how we need to do that. So this is exciting. Right. And, and uh, I, I saw John's face. Uh, he looked like Stacey Abrams when she was expecting uh, Biden to announce her as the VP candidate. Uh, I thought and, you were going to call me morbidly obese. <laughs> and, and she realized that he wasn't actually going to do that uh, because I, I can tell from your face, John, that American Psycho is probably also a film that you think is really good. And yeah, I actually haven't seen it in a long time. So I, that reminds me, I, I really need to see that again because uh, the first time I saw it, I really really loved it. So, uh, yeah, I, I need to see that again. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining us and, and being our plan B, uh, Jeff Deist, uh, is a great guy and, uh, we'd love to have him on sometime, but sometimes I think certain guests might be a little bit too good for our show and it's a little more comfortable having a friend who's, who's also not quite good enough. Who's not quite good enough. Uh, uh, but, you you brought a whole lot of good content and uh, thank you for that. We'd love to have you back uh, full metal jacket or something like that in the, in the near future. We can talk about private Joker. Absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Well, uh, everyone, thank you again. And uh, you can support us uh, in a myriad of ways. Robert can list off a few of them and then we'll say uh, our final words before we get into Kathleen Turner overdrive, which probably won't be super long tonight because it is so late for our guest. Uh, but we will have a little bit more content uh, after this. Absolutely. You can uh, buy some of my ridiculous artworks on Trumpster.com. That's my favorite way you can support us. But our, my second favorite way is probably Patreon.com. Um, Patreon.com slash something. I, I think, I think, I don't know. I, I, I listen to the show never, but I'm on the show all the time. So I don't have the details like Daniel does, but we also do this podcast and we release it all over the internets through the apples and you can go to the apples and you can tell them about how you like us and how you think other people should listen to us. And you can tell friends and family and loved ones, you know, when you're forced to sit at home and you just want something mentally stimulating. Well, I don't know if you'd want to listen to this show, but when you're done listening to that mentally stimulating content, then you can come back and listen to us just kind of, I don't know, however reason you want to do it. I mean, you can justify it in your own mind. Anyway, you want to, 
but um, yeah, any, any way you do do it, you can, you get our big thanks and our love and our hugs and our supports back at you. So thank you. Boomerang style. All right. And those hugs will be from six feet away, unfortunately, at least for the time being. So they're not really hugs. Uh, it's, it's, it's another one of those lies, right? The lies of war. We're unfortunately dealing with that during this pandemic. Mm. You can't hug during a pandemic. No, the humanity, the horror. All right. Well, thank you, uh, audience. And we will say uh, good night from last night. Check it out uh, for Kathleen Turner Overdrive after these messages. Peace out, everyone. All right, and we went a little bit long on uh, the last night's portion of the show, so we'll keep this a little bit short. This is uh, still actual anarchy before getting into the ca- Kathleen Turner overdrive right after this, but I, I usually try to save uh, a note or two for this portion of the show. And so, uh, Robert, I was going to devote this to you. Um, let's see. Uh, we talked about the PTSD possibility for um, for Captain Willard when we went home, and, and he'd actually been home uh, previously after being in Vietnam on his first tour. And he spent very little time uh, at home, but he, while being there, he longed to be back in the jungle, which was kind of strange to him because when he was in the jungle, he had longed to be home. And do you think that that is part of the um, the nature of being in such a high stress environment of war like that to where it's hell while you're in it, but you sort of like go through this initiation. And so coming back to civilian life, something's missing as you almost long to go back. That's kind of what I took from that. Yeah, you, you definitely, I mean, I've never been to war, but I get the impression that you have to change so much and that war is such a different hellish experience that you have to change and you have to go to a place in your own mind to survive it. And once you've survived it, then you're almost like, oh shit, well now what? Because I'm a totally different person now. Like, I mean, I know people that in my life that were drafted into Vietnam, one of the great mass slavings in modern history uh since slavery has supposedly been abolished but yeah unless there's a war on right that you know they wanted to be uh well this person wanted to be a a sunday school teacher or not a sunday school teacher a primary just like a elementary school teacher you know you wanted to work with kids and help kids and teach kids and went to vietnam and came back and he had horrific ptsd and he was essentially emotionally mentally disabled I mean, completely wrecked. I mean, physically, you know, normal, but mentally just couldn't work with kids. Are you kidding? And, this, and that's just a story that just, you know, that's just normal. So yeah, it absolutely changes you. Um, it completely destroys your ability to reconnect with people who haven't gone through that similar thing. And then you also, you also have to compartmentalize all the horrors that you've gone through. So you can't talk about it, nor you would you really want to talk about it. Cause you just want to relive, you wouldn't want to relive all that stuff, but you know, maybe, maybe you, you change so much that, yeah, that the war is what makes sense to you now. So then that's why you go back. I don't know, it messes you up, man. I, and I'm glad I never had to go through it. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I would definitely not want to have to have gone through that. And um, John, I'm going to say something that might be sacrilegious, but could you envision Rambo first blood being sort of the continuation of Willard's story arc? after he got home? Mm, no. I mean, I think he would have the capabilities to take on a, a small town sheriff. But um, yeah, I think I think to 
the original point where you know uh, Willard kind of accepted you know he he was back in in civilian life and then had to go back to war i think i uh, and i i kind of like um associate this with uh tom hanks's character in saving private ryan where he was a school teacher a grade school teacher and he in world war 2 he became this like hard fast hardcore captain that just led his men into battle and that was his main focus and you would never understand that he was like a high school or a grade school English teacher um i think that if you accept your your role in a war you could very well just that could just be your entire life and if you go back and sample what normal life is really like then you could be afraid that you know you're never going to get that again so if if you're if you're holding on to that aspect of your life, that's normal where you have a wife and you have a family and you have, uh, you know, Sunday barbecues and, and things like that, that if you accept that you're not going to survive the war. So you might as well just commit yourself 100% to the war and just forget the life you have back in America. So I think, I think that's probably what Willard, why, what Willard, what made Willard such a great, assassin in that sense and a great soldier and that he really committed himself to the war and just forgot all about his civilian life or put it out of his mind when when he needed to yeah now now that you mentioned that i i'm replaying in my head the the very final um scene where they're leaving the the marlon brando's village in the boat and they're listening and the radio's like they're trying to be reached by a overlord or whoever the code name is, and he just turns off the radio. And you kind of get the the sense that he's done with that now, and he's not leaving that jungle. That's just he's going to end there somehow, some way in the in the near future. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I have to agree with that. Yeah, I'm I'm not. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell because obviously you don't know what happens after that. Like I like I said, the beginning of the film we surmise is the end of the film in the, in the sense that Willard has called in the airstrike and, and, and the helicopters have rained hellfire upon Kurtz's compound. Um, but I think that turning off the radio is a kind of a symbol that like, yeah, he's just gone beyond just sheer chain of command. I think he's just in a world of his own and he's had to do what he had to do. And he doesn't want to hear from, the hierarchical structure that the military and that's involved in the military. So I think he's just, he's just had it. Uh, that's probably his last mission. I would assume, like, I don't know how you, how you kind of top that one, but uh, yeah, I think he's just, that's kind of his commit, his uh, resolve that he's just kind of done with all this. And as soon as the airstrike comes in and burns the place to the ground, he's sort of had it. Yeah. It's kind of the the feeling I get too. Well, uh, any final comments before we uh, get into Kathleen Turner Overdrive from uh, either of you fine uh, young gentlemen? Just thanks, John, for coming on. This is an excellent discussion, excellent guest as always, and uh, I really appreciated this episode. So uh, we can do more movies that are this good in the future. Man, I mean, and there probably aren't that many movies that are this good, but uh, it's always nice when uh, I got to watch a movie for the show and it's like, wow, I would watch this anyway. So that's always nice. Yeah, it's uh, pretty, pretty, pretty good, this one. Yeah, you said young gentleman, so I assumed you weren't referring to me. <laughs> I said but, uh, fine. I said fine, young gentleman, too. So oh, that's, that's another indicator right. that it wasn't that's you guys. Two strikes against me. 
Right. But yeah, this was fun. So glad I'm glad I could come on for this. And thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you guys. And uh, we'll be back next week with Pat McFarland of Liberty Weekly for American Psycho. And we will say maximum freedom, everyone. Peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do